Hello and welcome to Get Me Another, a podcast where we explore those movies that followed in the wake of blockbuster hits and attempted to replicate their success. My name is Chris Iannacone and with me, as always, is my co-host Rob Lamorgis. Hello everybody. This week marks the halfway point for our Get Me Another Halloween series, and it seems very appropriate that we'll be discussing two movies that we believe are among the best slasher films of this era, both of which feature killers wreaking havoc in small towns. First up is 1981's My Bloody Valentine. It's a bad time, this time of year. How many times is he going to tell this story? I love fairy tales. This ain't no fairy tale, little girl. If you don't take it seriously, you're a fool! (laughs) The first Valentine's dance in 20 years has to be something special. Look, Landers, you gotta get a lot of exercise if you're gonna grapple with Gretchen. Oh, yeah? Well, I got a valentine for her that she's never going to forget. <laughs> right to the heart, huh? In this town on Valentine's Day, everybody loses their heart. Roses are red, violets are blue. One is dead, and so are you. Bluffs. It looks like Harry Warden's back in town. It happened once. It happened twice. Cancel the dancer, it'll happen twice. In the town of Valentine Bluffs, there are many ways to die. Take your pick. My Bloody Valentine. My Bloody Valentine was written by John Beard and directed by George Mahalka. The original working title was The Secret, but was changed to capitalize on the wave of holiday-themed horror films. It was produced by the team of John Dunning and Andre Link, who had just completed Happy Birthday to Me, which we talked about in our last episode. And despite being shot later... My Bloody Valentine was released first in order to capitalize on, well, Valentine's Day. The film was sold to Paramount two weeks into production, who were hoping to replicate the success they had had with Friday the 13th the previous year. The second Friday the 13th wouldn't come out till a few months later. My Bloody Valentine is set in Valentine Bluffs, a mining town in Nova Scotia with a tragic past. 20 years earlier, on the night of the Valentine's Dance, Two workers at the Hanager Mine left five other workers down in the mine in order to attend the dance. An explosion trapped those five workers. It took weeks to reach them, and the only survivor, a man named Harry Warden, resorted to cannibalism and went insane. A year later, dressed in his mining gear, he murdered the two men who left their post, cut out their hearts, and put them in candy boxes. He was confined to a mental institution and over time became a local legend. And now 20 years later, Valentine Bluff is ready to resume their Valentine's Day dance 
and Harry Warden may be returning once more. Um, My Bloody Valentine, it's a terrific movie, and I, I think it's incredibly well constructed. And we'll, we should talk a little bit about that, because it's it's just, I think it's just so clean um, and, and, and smart. Yeah, this thing, uh, <clears throat> just on the big general level, and this will sound a little odd, it's paced like a real movie. You get yeah. into scenes late. And, you know, you, you enter scenes late, you get out early, um, the thing just has momentum, you really aren't sticking around long anywhere except for when you are in chase sequences, the cat and mouse sequences, when they do occur, right. uh, they give those times. Although a lot of the the earlier kills aren't aren't necessarily large sequences in and of themselves either, they uh, they sometimes can can spring up on you very quickly, uh, yeah. like, like at the laundromat would be one. Uh, idea where that happens uh, in, a, in a good way where you get a little surprise there. But uh, just overall, the pacing of this thing's great. Yeah, and the laundromat sequence happens fairly early. It's it's not, you know, unlike, you know, Prom Night or some of the movies we talked about earlier where they they hold the, uh, the, the kills till later in order to sort of not have the plot unspooled too quickly. Here they find a way, and both of the movies today, find a way to, to sort of speed up the action without, you know, w- but but still have, uh, you know, the plot being able to unfold. Um, I should say that the movie stars Paul Kelman, Laurie Haller, Neil Affleck, no relation, and Don Franks. And uh, I also want to mention, it was sh- another film shot in Canada. This is the fourth film in that we've discussed in this series that was shot in Canada after Prom Night, Terror Train, and the aforementioned Happy Birthday to Me. But it's the first that doesn't try to hide its Canadianness, and rather it wears it on its sleeve. Oh, Canada, <laughs> your tax breaks are so grand. Uh, this was the the first big wave of. Uh, uh, tax breaks in Canada that launched off what the Canucks exploitation. I mean, I know it's oh, yeah. earlier than the eighties, but uh, it essentially meant that almost any movie you made in Canada would be profitable no matter what. It's right. like uh, like an early version of uh, you could make any movie and slap it on DVD in the nineties or something. One of the things I just love about this movie, and and I think that makes it so special, is the authenticness of place. Like it's set in a mining town in Nova Scotia, and it. It was shot in a mining town in Nova Scotia. They used a real mine for the mine sequences. Um, it was no longer an active mine, but it was, it was, it was, you know. I believe with that mine, uh, if I'm not mistaken, they had scouted it, thought it was perfect. They wanted to shoot yeah. there. And then the town said, oh my goodness, a movie's going to come shoot here. Let's fix up the mine. And they spent 50 <laughs> grand making the mine look nice and the movie got there and they said oh my god and they had to spend like more money to make it look old again uh, yeah which I it's like a 200 year old mine in the movie and you know there are parts of it that are shut down but even more than just the look of the movie and i think the look of the movie is terrific because it really just feels authentic is the characters there's something that there's something about how, like, it just, it all feels so authentic. I mean, it, it almost feels like, you know, th- this was a cross between Halloween and the deer hunter, as far as, like, a picture of a remote, you know, mine-oriented town where everybody knows each other, everybody's grown up together, and it's absolutely, like, it just feels completely genuine. 
what I find interesting about this that's a little different from some of the others that we've, you know, looked at or are going to, is that that includes the older characters as well. Yeah. Which really does give it the small town feel that yeah. there there does seem to be a relationship with, oh goodness, uh, what, Mabel. Yeah. Right? Uh, she she's the aforementioned victim in the laundry. She runs. She's the also laundry. helping to run yep. the dance, and she's she's doing a lot in town. She has a relationship with the kids, and it's not like in some of the American movies where if you had that, it might just be adversarial. Oh, it's the old lady, and we have to sneak around her or whatever. No, there's actually like some genuine warmth there. Although they are also trying to sneak around Mabel to do what they want, but um. It does give that extra dimension of small town life. Well, and, and the relationship that Mabel has with uh, the, the the mayor and the police chief. Like, you just feel that there's, you know, these are people who have lived together in, in their town for 60 plus years. They've grown up together. Who knows what relationships they may have had in the past. And it all feels totally uh, authentic. I mean, there's this great moment where the, the younger characters are hanging out at what, what looks like a scrapyard. And they're cooking TV dinners on an engine block. And I'm just like, there's something that it's like, you wouldn't think of that unless that had been something, you know, it's just, I I think it's so great. And, and it just makes this movie feel so authentic to its place and its people. And then, you know, then you can start killing them off. I do want to point out that earlier on in the movie, there's something that maybe transcends their place into the time of the era. It's as the miners are leaving work in their truck, Chris, and their cars. <laughs> oh no, I know where this is going. On the soundtrack, yep. you get some Smokey and the Bandit banjo music, baby. You can't get out. <laughs> uh, you you can't get away if you're in the late seventies and early eighties. People forget, but you can't get away from Smokey and the Bandit. That, that was the second biggest movie of nineteen seventy-seven, for goodness' sake. And it is its and you're influence those is reverberations thorough. even in Nova Scotia. Oh. Yes, uh, let's talk. <laughs> there's there's an amazing sequence at the opening of this film uh, where we see two people in like full mining gear, including gas masks, heading through the mine, and they they come to a stop. One of the miners strips off her coveralls to reveal a beautiful blonde woman in her underwear, and and then you know there's there's things that ensue from that. Um, it is so bizarre and surreal and frankly erotic. Uh, and, and what a way to fit, open this movie. Um, I should say at the outset, this will be a spoiler. Uh, this podcast is, is, is deals in spoilers because we talk about sort of the underlying meanings, especially when you have uh, hidden identities that are uncovered. Um, then, you know, spoilers are kind of part of the course. So if if you're interested in either of the movies that we watch and you want to remain unspoiled, hit pause here and come back to us later. We will take no umbrage. Um, both movies are great and worth watching. Now, the, the interesting thing, I'm going to go into the and stuff that you talked about with this scene because there was one thing in particular that jumped out at me and it, look, I know it's it's in some ways supposed to be sexually provocative, but it is also creepy as hell. When she is stroking the gas hose from the gas mask, very much like a phallus. And man, I did not remember that. Yeah, that was in my notes too. And it just, it struck me as, I mean, what a creepy, creepy tone to do right off the bat. Absolutely. I, I I can't explain why. It just, it's very unsettling. No, it was the whole, it was, it was totally unsettling. Uh, yes, that was absolutely stood out to me too. Uh, I didn't remember that from when I had previously watched the movie. It had been a few years, 
But man, it stood out this time. I don't know what that says. But uh, what's weird also about this opening killing, we never hear anything about it later. It's never like, oh, Sally went missing or, you know, or they find her body in the mine or anything like that. Presumably, it is her heart that's the first heart that's found in a candy box, but it's never explicitly said. No. So, I mean, it must have been someone from outside the, the area. This does look like it might just be some nookie, but this woman, when she strips down, has the unfortunate, uh, has the unfortunate tattoo on her body of a heart. And I think the question is, is that the heart that then enrages the killer or not? Is that is that kind of what sets things off to go on this Valentine's Day massacre route or not? Rob, would it surprise um, you if I said I have that very same tattoo? Uh, oh, don't show me, Chris. <laughs> uh, <laughs> um, I, I do not for... for yeah, I think my dad listens to this pod. I do not have that same tattoo, just for the record. Um, the story focuses on three main characters. TJ, the son of the mine's owner who left town for a while, uh, but struggled to make it and is now back. His former girlfriend, Sarah, and her new boyfriend, Axel, who was a formerly a friend of TJ's and they grew up together. So what you got here, folks, is your basic love triangle. Um but, you know, and this drives a lot of the early character interactions, and and it feels very real. I mean, again, that's the thing about these characters, is they all feel just totally authentic. Um, and, and that is true of, of of the three who are kind of, she's like, well, I, I, I'm with this guy now, but I did love him, and he left, and, you know, is he going to leave again? And trying to decide, um, you know, which one she wants to be with, of course, they, in some ways, they come, uh, they become the two primary suspects by the end of the film. Uh, and we'll get into, you know, who, if any, was the actual killer. Yeah, the love triangle and the way that it's just the story beats in this thing really separated, I think, a bit also from some of the other slashers. It's a good love triangle. Oh, yeah. Um, and just stripping out the horror elements, what I like, which I think is very un uncommon for its era, mm. is that neither guy is necessarily a slam dunk. Right. Uh, you know, one way or the other. Yeah. That, um, you know, TJ, he's the one who had left and come back mysteriously. Uh, he's dark haired. He's very moody. Like he's uh, he's presented a little bit more as your brooding bad boy in a way. But he's not a jerk. Um, you know, he has just come back and wants to rekindle things and seems very genuine in that. But he, he won't talk to uh, her about why he left. And so you're like, well, TJ does seem, it's like the more romantic of the two. Uh, but at the same time, red flag, I understand why Sarah's trepidatious. That actor, by the way, uh, Paul Kelman, he should have been cast on Dallas as like the long lost Ewing brother from Canada because he looks just like a young Larry Hagman. Like I was like, oh my God. That guy looks like he's J.R. Ewing's brother, more so than, than uh, you know, Bobby on the show, you know, that look anything like him. Um, that's all I could think of. Yeah, and uh, I will just also say, he also, oddly enough, looks like uh, an alternate Jermaine Clement. Oh, yeah. Or one half of Kenny versus Spenny. <laughs> uh, but the uh, Axel, the blonde guy, he's the guy who didn't leave, yeah. right? And he's just there with Sarah. He seems like a very dutiful boyfriend, as he is. Affable. He is also... He's not a big jerk, 
Um, they're both minors, so it's not like you get the rich guy, poor guy dynamic right. that they often throw in with these things. Um, but, you know, maybe Axel isn't always so understanding of the fact that Sarah might want to talk to her ex-boyfriend yeah. who disappeared. And you're like, well, you know, Axel's feeling threatened. I, I get it. But it's like, it's not like he's perfect either. No. And then that that gets Sarah to a point where she isn't quite sure what's going on and i'm i'm with her at at that point and and uh, you know to get into a little later on um there's a certain point at which she's so befuddled by what to do and kind of both guys are acting out a little bit that she just wants nothing to do with either of them so she can figure things out yeah i'm like yes i sarah you you take your space yeah i need you you to figure this out listen that's a you know, you, neither one of those guys is entitled to you, Sarah. That's and 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 you know, thankfully you're not in uh, the the setting of of Avalon Bluffs, which is all about male entitlement. We'll get to that in our next movie. But um, the town authorities in in My Bloody Valentine are represented by the chief of police, Newby, and Mayor Hanger Hanniger, who also owns the mine and is TJ's father. And then early in the film, they receive a box of chocolates with a human heart inside. And they fear Harry Warden, who has returned and, and who had killed two people. And, and you know, they're from very early trying to figure out what's going on. They cancel the Valentine's Day dance sensibly. But of course, what they can't count on is that the kids decide to hone their, hold their own Valentine's Day party in, a, in like kind of a rec room a, a adjacent to the mine. Uh, I want to oh, I want to point out the the note on the box. I love the mm. I love the poetry of the killer. From the heart comes a warning filled with bloody good cheer. Remember what happened as the fourteenth draws near. Um, yeah, it's just the, the, there's so many great little. It's like oh, he, he's a poet too, and the Valentine's poetry even is a clue for one of your red herrings. Uh, early on, you get the bartender. Yes. Uh, who tells the story? So we get the Harry Warden backstory. Yes. From the bartender, but he's also a little crazy Ralphish. I crazy, was going to mention Ralph. that. Yes. You know, it started twenty years ago. It was the night of the Valentine's Day dance, the Union Hall, the biggest event of the year. It had been a tradition for over a hundred years. Everybody was there except for seven miners who were out at the Hanager mine. Five of them still down below. Two supervisors were waiting for the men to come up. Anxious to get to the party, they left before the men were safely out, failing to check the methane gas levels in the tunnels down below. continued its party (laughs) for six weeks we dug around the clock to try to save them after we broke through one man was found alive I was the one who found (laughs) Harry Warden spent the next year in the state mental hospital exactly one year later on Valentine's Day, he came back to town. He killed the two supervisors who had left the post the year before. Then he cut out their hearts 
stuffed them into heart-shaped candy boxes. That night at the dance, we found the boxes, blood dripping out the sides. Inside was a note, a warning from Harry, never to hold a Valentine's dance ever again. Every February 14th, Harry comes back to town, his pickaxe stained with blood, waiting in the shadows of the Henniger mine just for someone to kill, should they not heed his warning. It could be you. I know what I'm saying. So after he gives the 20 years ago speech, he does he does get to talk about that the town is cursed and at one point even delivers a Valentine's Day rhyming poem <laughs> about it. And you're like, oh, because we've already seen the box at that point. But um, and th- this is another thing that I like about this movie is that for the characters in it, for the mayor and the, uh, the chief sheriff, of cop, chief of police, yeah, they the the text of the movie does treat it as everyone in it just thinks it's Harry Warden. It's right. got to be Harry Warden. Even later on, once the once the miners and their their uh you know their friends start discovering it, they also think, oh, it's Harry Warden is back. Yeah. But the movie from Jump is telling the audience, maybe, maybe, <laughs> exactly, maybe it's Harry Warden. Um. Yeah. I I want to mention that. Yeah. If 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 um. If Crazy Ralph is the archetype of of the harbinger of doom character, uh, then Happy, uh, the local bartender, might be my personal favorite. He goes so far <laughs> as to set up a dummy at the mine with a pickaxe to scare those little whippersnappers. But unfortunately, Happy goes back to, to check his handiwork one too many times and when he does that that fourth time, it's not the, the the dummy; it's the real minor killer. I also want to mention he works at a bar called the Cage, which sounds like something way more interesting than the dive bar it actually is. It also only serves Moosehead beer. That's the other notable <laughs> yes. thing about the bar, and really the entire town. I think it's they're living uh, on Moosehead. Yeah, it's dry town. With one exception for Moosehead beer. Uh, um, what's what's interesting, and you mentioned this, it's like early on, the, the the residents of the town assume it's Harry Warden returns, but the but the movie is telling the audience that well, maybe, maybe not, and it it makes me think of a movie we talked about last week, Final Exam, which I, I determined you know it was a, a slasher film with neither mythology nor mystery. What's great about My Bloody Valentine is it has both. It has both mythology and mystery. Um, While what happened with Harry Warden 20 years earlier informs the narrative, it's not entirely clear that the killer is Harry. And the fact that he wears this mask just adds to that mystery. Yeah. And uh, so if you're looking at pieces from Halloween here, right, you have the murder from long ago. Mm -hmm. You have a killer returned, although in this case. Out of a mental asylum, presumably. Yeah. Um, You have the connection of the killing with a specific holiday date. Yep. Uh, You know, from Halloween night to Valentine's Day. Um, But if you're looking at and it's hard to know because it is close enough. Right. But these things often were made fast. Yeah. If you're looking at what seems more Friday the 13th related, whodunit mystery, yep. you even have, uh, you know, you have your crazy Ralph warning type character. Sure. Uh, 
which you could say Loomis, Loomis's warning in Halloween, but the function is just so different. Yeah. I, I wouldn't call it. He's not a warning character. He's no. He's Von Helsing, right? Yeah, he's, he's, he's the hunter. Um, another thing you get in this uh, My Bloody Valentine that is more, it feels, from the Friday the 13th strand. And look, I realize not everything necessarily started with Friday the 13th, but as you transition into the 80s, these other things start seeping in one way or another. Uh, so you get the character in this one who has the fake blood come out at one point to do a false scare early oh, on. Oh, yes, the the, so the Joker, that, the, the practical Joker character. The practical Joker character who is often faking a death for whatever reasons. Um, this seems to be a staple in a lot of these movies once you get into the 80s. Definitely wasn't in Halloween. Right. Um, you had a version of it in Friday the 13th. You've had a version of it in many others. Uh, what in um, last week when we were talking about uh, oh, Happy Birthday, happy to, birthday me, to Me, you get yeah. that big time with what Alfred, I think. Um, yeah. So anyway, it's just interesting to see how you're you're kind of interlocking these different uh as you're moving from one decade to the other, how you're interlocking pieces of the trend. And it's also interesting how with, with My Bloody Valentine, they do have murders happen fairly early, but they keep, you know, like the town still takes like, they take like logical and reasonable actions, but that don't send everything into pandemonium. So like the, when they when they find Mabel in, in the laundromat, you know, the chief says, listen, I don't want anybody saying murder. I want everybody to put out that she died of a heart attack because if it if, if people start talking about Harry Warden, it's going to be pandemonium around here and you can forget it, um, you know, in order to keep order so they can try and find the killer rather than have people, you know, I to, to quote Loomis, you know, you'll see him on every street corner. Uh, if you if you put that out, they kind of keep it silent. So while they cancel the dance, the young people don't know there's any danger. So they're like, well, why shouldn't we have a party? Like, what's the what's the the, the point of not doing that? And it's what I really like about this movie is that there's people who do stupid things, but there are stupid things that everyday people just kind of do when they don't think their lives are in jeopardy. Oh yeah, let's go down and hang out in the mine. Well, that's kind of stupid, but you you wouldn't if you're if you don't realize a killer is on the loose, oh hey, it's it's the kind of stupid thing you do when you're a young person and you know, you're like, "Oh, let's go do that." And they don't learn they're in danger until that group has gone to, down to the mine and they, you know, then they're they're out of communication. They they can't know they don't start discovering bodies until like in 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 large quantity until you know that group is already split off yeah and um and the movie i think treats that very you're right it's it's set up very well so that even when characters are doing something that we know in the context of the film is extremely stupid the characters don't have all the context right um and you know a lot of times i'm not a big fan of horror movies where the characters don't know they're in a horror movie <laughs> this movie does much like halloween it's got two tracks though yeah uh where you have characters who very much know that it's a horror movie and are working to try to stop the danger and then you have uh you know innocents who do not know that exactly and and the other thing is with that love triangle story with those that don't know they're in a horror movie you have something that can drive those scenes. Yes. Which is another thing where you have an A story for the, the 
the the people who don't know they're in a horror movie that's driving their actions. Right. Now, I'd talked about in Friday the 13th, I actually did love the fact that there was no story in that one, and it felt like a hangout movie. But I'll be honest, there are a lot of movies, <laughs> there are a lot of slasher movies that will have the, the kids not know that there's danger and have no story for them yeah. and have them just hanging out. And it's, um, oh, it's a it's, slog. Yeah. Well, it's like, yeah. it's like, you know, in the Olympics when you, when you're doing like the ice skating routines and the more difficult the routine, you know, the higher degree of difficulty and the more points you can get for it. But if you don't make it, you're not going to get those points. So it's like, yeah, you can do a kind of hangout movie, but if you don't make those characters really interesting and, and their interactions really interesting, if you kind of go plotless, um, you know, it's a higher degree of difficulty, and if you don't make the bar, you're not gonna you're not gonna land the triple sack cow. Yeah, and in, in the later Friday movies, you know, or at least in two and three, they're relatively storyless in that sense. But you do see that they're a they're trying to make up for it with the inventive kills, right? Um, but they they do have even vestiges of things like that with like the bikers, yeah. you know, <laughs> in three bikers. and how the the bikers are antagonistic yeah. with them a little. So they they try and give little little story arcs of sorts yeah. uh, to try and uh, go on. But here you get you get the the love triangle, and it really it still makes those scenes propulsive, and even more so because they're worried about something that is very ground level, and we know the audience that their lives are in danger. Right. And then eventually we even know, Oh my God, Sarah, you're probably choosing <laughs> between your, your choice might be easier than you think, right. Sarah. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> uh, and, and speaking of inventive kills, this movie has some terrific ones. Like it is, it oh, is yeah. really good. Like the scene where um, Sylvia gets killed, the character of Sylvia, um, and she's, it's, it's a terrific scene. She's, she's often a, uh, part of the, the mine, not, they're not down in the mine, but they're in the, the, you know, the topside area. And it's where all of the mining suits are, are hanging up from the ceiling. And she's with her boyfriend. He goes to get some beer and, uh, you know, and, and while he is gone, she's waiting for him. And it's this, it's this great scene where she's looking up and all the mining suits are hanging from the ceiling. And it reminded me of the scene in Alien where Harry Dean Stanton is looking for the cat and there's all these pipes and chains hanging up and you just feel that something's off. And then the killer does show up. I mean, it's, that's not a you know, surprise to no one, but the, the way that whole sequence she's taken into the shower and, and, She's basically like impaled on a shower head and the water is coming out of her mouth. It's, 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 it's an extraordinary kill. And it's one of the ones that got truncated because of some of the MPAA cuts, which we'll talk about in a bit, how this movie was kind of cut to the bone by the MPAA or forced to cut because of MPAA concerns. Um, and, but it's, it, you know, I, I watched, this is, this is the first movie since we started doing not just the series, but this podcast that I've watched twice in advance of, of the show because I watched the 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 R rated theatrical cut and the unrated cut that's on the Blu Ray, and it does make a difference. Uh, it's really there's really some extraordinary stuff that they, they that was cut out. Yeah, and the, the kills in this thing are great. They it's weird. I feel they ride the line between trying to you know give the audience a little uh, a little grand guignol mm-hmm. right to enjoy, uh, but it's still the tone of it still feels 
like it cares about the characters yeah. and it's not necessarily reveling in their deaths. No, I, it's reveling in how horrific it is. Yes. But it's not, it's not that ha ha we got them, which uh, again, that's coming uh, oh, yeah. <laughs> further down this timeline. Uh, we will get there. Another thing I wanted to talk about, I'm sure it's, it's on your list, Chris, is that the minor. Yes. As the killer, it, it is fairly iconic. Absolutely. I know this movie wasn't as big, but the look of the killer is really cool. It's, I'm sure this was all real mining gear, but the, the stuff that they chose, it feels unusual. Absolutely terrifying. Yeah. It, this is different from any other, like, coal mining. Like, this does not look like the miners in Coal Miner's Daughter. No. Uh, <laughs> Uh, and and yes, I did have that note. I, honestly, I'm going to say that the miner in My Bloody Valentine is the most iconic looking killer since Michael Myers in Halloween to that point. Now we hadn't yet. Jason and his hockey mask would come in 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 down the road. That's something that wouldn't happen because you know that doesn't happen until Friday the Thirteenth Part Three. The, the hockey mask doesn't make its appearance. But I'd say that the the the, the killer in My Bloody Valentine is absolutely iconic, and it allows them to play a game in the third act, which we're going to get to. Um, because the third act basically takes place in the mine, and it's what a great setting for this. It is so, you know. It's just visually different. It, it's 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 not just a suburban street, you know. It's it's something that's very very specific, but really interesting. And um, you have a, a situation in the third act where, and now we're really going to be getting into spoiler territory here. So you know, just be warned. Uh, by the third act, most of the characters realize there's a killer on the loose who would appear to be Harry Warden, and both TJ and Axel head down to the mine to get their friends who went down there and both of them are wearing mining gear just like the killer except for the 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 gas mask so there's this kind of shell game where it's like oh which one is which one appears and disappears when is one of the two of them the killer or is there yet is it is it actually Harry Warden it is it's this really interesting setup for to keep the audience guessing yeah, I mean, it, it is almost like uh, like if you had a movie where Michael Myers was on the loose and then you had a Halloween party where two of the red herring suspects were dressed like Michael Myers. Exactly. Um, it's, uh, yeah, and it's great. And at that point, I want to say by the time that has happened, that we know that the chief of police has gotten the call from the asylum that's very important. Yeah, he hasn't revealed We haven't heard it. what it is yet. Yeah. I mean, at that point, sitting watching this movie, you know that the call's not coming back. Oh, yes, Harry Warden is alive and escaped. Right. Uh, it's pretty <laughs> clear at that point. Because they've been leading you up all throughout this with, um, oh, there's no record of Harry Warden at right. the asylum. Uh, and then they have to call to try, or no, they have to go through the microfilm. Yeah, they, the microfilm. That's maybe the one disappointing thing about this movie is we don't get the scene of them looking through the microfiche. I love <laughs> microfilm scenes. It's one of those things. You put a yeah. microfilm scene in a movie and I'm there for it. It's like, it's like watching James Bond check into a hotel for some reason, I can never get enough of of that. What what se would seemingly be a mundane uh, a mundane top, but I love it. I just you know give me 
give me James Bond checking into a hotel and then going to search for the microfiche. And you, you that's a, that's a movie for me. Um, yeah, it's it, it, basically, it comes down to TJ Axel and Sarah and, and Axel apparently drowns like off screen. He kind of like, you hear him fall into this, you know, basically this, 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 this chasm of water, which they tell you is 60 feet down. And he's like, okay, when that happens, you're like, oh, oh, it's him. Because you didn't see it actually happen. It's off screen. But then, then TJ gets separated by a rock slide that cuts him off from Sarah. And it's basically Sarah alone. And you're like, oh, it could still be either one. And, or, you know, and, 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 and it turns out TJ reunites with Sarah and the killer is revealed to be Axel, whose father was one of the men who left their post for the party and was subsequently killed by Harry Warden. Axel witnessed the murder and went insane. And it's at this point the chief newbie reveals that that Harry Warden died, the real Harry Warden died five years earlier. And it's a, it's, it, it, this all plays out incredibly well in, in the final minutes of this movie. Something notable is that this movie, the killer doesn't die and isn't captured. Yes, because Axel, in full-on crazy mode, oh yeah, runs away into the abandoned part of the mine, uh, like mwahahaing and saying that he'll be back and he'll get. Well, the, he'll, he and Harry will be back. Like that's it's like in his mind, he's teamed up with Harry War, and uh, I should say, subsequent to that, he's he's trapped by a rock slide, and his arm is, and he. He cuts off his own arm. So with, you know, one arm, he's he's retreating into the mine and cackling to himself. Like, it's like, you know, you know, Sarah, my bloody Valentine. And, and you know, saying that he and Harry Warden together would return to kill everyone in town. This is a nice little bit that connects, I think, to the story of Harry Warden. Yeah. It's also just crazy and creepy on its own. But when the bartender was telling that story, we were getting kind of flashbacks. So we were seeing what was happening. And there's that shot of when they find Harry Warden inside uh, the mine and he had gone insane and was a cannibal and he's eating an arm. Yeah. Yeah. But the camera's looking down at him almost like it, it looks like it's almost like you're looking down on him in a hole, even though it's, you know, the trapped mine. I got very, very Todd Browning Renfield vibes. Totally. From like when they open up the, the ship and Renfield's in there with the, the lightning. Absolutely. <laughs> Absolutely. And, uh, and so you get, it's like that almost classic kind of insane guy thing at the beginning, but then also at the end with Axel. Now, I know they did a, a remake of this movie in the aughts, but how... They have not done, I mean, this movie with the way it ends, and I think it is the most chilling ending for a film that we've talked about in this series since the original Halloween, but how they have not done a legacy sequel for My Bloody Valentine, where, you know, it's it's 40 years later and they've resumed Valentine's Day festivities in 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 Valentine's Bluff, and there's talk of, will, will Axel, I can't remember his last name, will Axel be back? And frankly, you, the the it's set up to do the prequel film too. Yeah. Um, I know they focus on the two miners that Harry Warden killed, but presumably he could have killed more while in pursuit of those two. Absolutely. Uh, supervisors. Um, but there's one thing, Chris, about the ending of this film. Oh yes. I know where you're that going. It is amazing. Yes. But it is not chilling. No, it is. It is electrifying. Over the credits, we get this amazing folk song, the 
Ballad of Harry Warden and telling the story in song of the movie you just watched. And it is ink. Rob, I want to learn this and play it at parties. And I should mention, I can neither sing nor play the guitar, but I want to learn to do both just for this song. It's incredible. It's it's wreck of the Edmund Fitzgerald good as far as like, you know, like folk songs about about like blue collar disasters. It's it's that good. And I guarantee you stay after after our final film everybody and you're going to hear a little bit of that song. I'm going to say we're going to hear all of it. You're going to hear a lot bit of it, yes. <laughs> um, it's funny. A, a couple of quick things, uh, and then we'll move on to the next one. But uh, it, it's it's there's a couple of things. One, the actors themselves were not told the identity of the killer, including the, the actors who played TJ and, and Axel were not told. Although Neil Affleck, who played Axel, did guess that he was the killer when the filmmakers had him fitted for a prosthetic arm. <laughs> Good guess. Uh, and yeah, this is um, this movie had a ton of trouble with the MPAA to secure its R rating, uh, and and director George Mahalka uh, told the st- you know, tells the story that MPAA had Jack Valenti said of this film, "Tell those Canadians to take their movie and go home. This is an X rated film." Yeah, I mean, and when if if you have. When you look at the history of the Friday the 13th films yeah. and the furor that the first one caused by getting an R rating, yes, um, you will see in a lot of the subsequent slashers how the MPAA had decided we're not going to have you know parental groups and church groups coming after us again. Uh, and they start really, really honing in on uh, on a lot of the gore in in all of the slasher films. Yeah. I think and they I, were particularly I think, hard on the on the Friday the Thirteenth films yeah. going after, but this spread to everything. And I think Paramount was in particular uh, conscious of because they had distributed Friday the Thirteenth, so like they were they didn't want to deal with the same thing with My Bloody Valentine. So it's not like they were there fighting for the movie. But from the town of Valentine Bluffs, we move to the town of Avalon Bay for our second film today. Also from 1981, this is The Prowler. It was 1945, the night of the graduation dance. The war overseas had just ended. The terror at home was about to begin. Roy? Come on, kid, don't play hard to get. What about New Year's Eve? Well, that was different. I couldn't help myself. The Prowler. If he wants you, he'll get you. Tonight, the terror begins again. They never found out who did it. It had to be someone in town, someone who knew that she was called Rose. And Mark, that guy still might be around here. Oh, man, I don't believe this. You're talking about something that happened over 30 years ago. Whenever the time was right, he'd come back. The Prowler. If he wants you, 
he'll get you. Night after night, he waited for her. The Prowler. If he gets you, you'll wish you were dead. Written by Glenn Leopold and Neil Barbera, son of Joseph Barbera, who co-founded the Hanna-Barbera Animation Studio, and directed by Joseph Zito, who would subsequently direct Friday the 13th, the final chapter, which, for the record, is my favorite Friday the 13th film. Uh, The Prowler stars Vicky Dawson, Christopher Goutman, Lawrence Tierney, and Farley Granger. And in a lot of ways, this is a very similar movie to My Bloody Valentine, although there are a couple of of key differences. Um, The Prowler opens with celebratory newsreel footage of the end of World War II and the return of American GIs from overseas. We then cut to a woman writing a Dear John letter, which she signs, Rosemary. And there's a beautiful moment early in this movie where the, the 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 opening scene where she's writing the letter and the ink and the paper are all black and white, and the only color is the red rose that's drawn drawn near Rosemary's name, and it's just a really really nice film effect, for sure. And I just want to point out that that dear John letter does not say dear John; it's not addressed to anybody. Correct. Which is a big point because if it had been addressed to anybody, it would have said dear. And you would have known exactly who the killer was. Exactly. Um, I also want to point out there's no way on earth that a newsreel footage of that era would have acknowledged the psychological issues that returning soldiers would face. That was not a thing. I mean, it was a thing, but it was not publicly acknowledged as a thing. People didn't talk about that in the wake of World War II. It wasn't until until Vietnam and late, later wars that we really talked about some of those things. But it's uh, it is central to this movie. It's interesting because it is brought up as the motivating factor yeah. for the killer. I mean, I guess it the, the shell shock is it would have been, you know, right, possibly known at the time combined with um, you know, your his girl who had promised to wait for him and then saying she couldn't wait anymore and moving on. Those two things combined uh to produce the motivation to kill. Right. Um but this is not I just want to just straight call this out. This is not a modern film. No. This is not dealing with the trauma of the Prowler or really diving any deeper into it than than just what it is. It is it's it's an explanation, but as far as a story point, it might as well be Michael Myers is pure evil. Right. Uh yes. because it's just set up and then and then you're off to the races. Uh, we then move to June 28th, 1945, and the graduation dance for a small college in the town of Avalon Bay. Rosemary is there with her new boyfriend, a wealthy young man named Roy, and together they leave the dance and go to a nearby gazebo to make out. It is there they are attacked by a man wearing an army combat uniform who impales the young lovers with a pitchfork, leaving behind a red rose. Uh, We then cut to June 28th, 1980, and the graduation dance is about to resume after a 35-year absence. And as the students prepare to celebrate their graduation, a killer prepares to strike once more. First off, the first thing I want to say is the 1945 sequence looks amazing. There is something about 
films from the 70s and 80s and the way they depicted the early 20th century period from like the 20s to the 40s, that just feels incredibly authentic to me. And The Prowler is no exception, despite it being a relatively low budget movie. But there's something about it. I don't know why, but the way in the 70s and 80s they did the 20s, 30s and 40s so authentically, it's it's incredible. Yeah, I mean, they would have had access to some of the stuff yeah. still. Like, you're not making costumes. You're probably able to find costumes, which is yeah. a biggie. You would have had people on the crew, uh, not not the younger members, but would you have had some some old production designer or a costume super who, like, knew what that stuff was because right. they had seen it, even if they were eight when they saw it? Things, you know, all of that stuff's very helpful. Um, you know, and you just, it's... Um, Oh goodness. Like when you think about like American graffiti depicting the time that it did. Yeah. Those are people who had lived through it. I mean, oh, that's yeah. a lot closer. But like even movies like uh, uh like Warren Beatty's Reds or or heck, The Godfather. Yeah. I mean, you have a movie being made in the yeah, 70s yeah. that's depicting the events of the 40s and 50s. Um and and it's just interesting. Like it, it's and I guess it's contextually like making a movie now that's taking place in the 80s. And you know, many of us remember the 80s, so it's it's that sort of thing like it hasn't faded beyond the veil of memory yet um yeah i also yeah. think it's it, what what also helps that is is sh- the shoe the film was shot in cape may new jersey at a beachside community uh, at the southern tip of new jersey that has a lot of late 19th and early 20th century victorian homes and you know just it it's it's is always a boon to your film to shoot in new jersey <laughs> Apparently, they originally wanted to set it on in Avalon on Catalina Island. That was the original intended setting, but they they weren't able to shoot there, so they they relocated to Cape May, and they they named it the kind of nondescript Avalon Bay. The the one thing that this place has that Catalina doesn't quite, although I assume they would have used the dance hall, but that yeah. the homes that are across from each other in this film. I mean, because it's it's a film that takes place kind of in three locations that are all across the street from each other. It yeah. Feels. Um, like essentially, because you get the girl's home, like a, the dorm. Yeah. I don't know that it's a sorority house, but it's it's the girl's dorm. They refer to it as a dorm. So I guess it's a house converted into yeah. a dorm. And then you get the the house nearby where the dance is going to take place. Yeah. And then you have Major Chatham's. Yeah. And that's kind of it. You know, and then, you know, the the surrounding area. But that whole, there's just this quaint kind of, you get the quaint, like, almost seaside feel to it. Oh, I love the town. Uh, even though you're not, you're not ever at the beach. No. Um, but you can tell. You can tell that there's just, there's a sense of, this is a town near, I mean, part of it is the fact that it's named Avalon Bay. But, you know, it makes me think, you know, that salt sea air, you know, sometimes I say to my wife, you know, I, a different different road, I could have had a maritime life. Yeah, well, and it's not just the name, because no amount of American flags made me feel that prom night was actually shot in the United <laughs> States. But uh, a, a little secret, Chris, I grew up in my childhood every summer, I would spend uh, about a week at the Jersey Shore, because my dad is from New Jersey, right. and his family. And so this... This looks like the architecture of places that are in the, those sure. areas, right? And and for those of you who maybe only know MTV, um, Jersey Shore is not no most. It's not mostly 
a like, you know, Mykonos party club atmosphere. It's actually mostly very quaint and family oriented uh, in a lot of what what's around there and what you can do very I mean, I would, and I haven't been back in a long time. I would almost give bucolic as a word to describe much of the Jersey Shore. Right. And and the Jersey Shore is very long. Like it's a very lengthy, you know, stretch of, of coastline. And, and some of it, you know, some of it you get your, you know, your, your Jersey Shore type stuff. Uh, and some of it you don't. Some of it's more. And, and in the off season, even more so, like there's something about the quietness of Jersey Shore towns in the winter that I love. Um, you know, this it's just uh and 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 this film, you know, again, it, it feels part of that. Um The Prowler does have some elements in common with my bloody Valentine. Uh both are set in small towns where a dark incident in their past sort of clouded an event. And both movies have a younger generation that is eager to move on from the past, and you have older folks who are apprehensive about doing so. They also both fun- focus on the resumption of celebrations that have been dormant for a long time. Um, The Prowler follows Pam, a senior helping organize the dance, as well as her friends Lisa and Sherry, and her boyfriend Mark, who is a sheriff's deputy. Mark will be in charge of things during the the dance because the sheriff will be going off on his annual fishing trip that he starts the summer with. Um, And I I say, one thing I love about The Prowler is it gets right to it. Like after the 1945 prologue, stuff starts to happen pretty quick. Like, it doesn't wait an hour to do its first kind of present-day kill. No, it does not. And there are other major differences from My Bloody Valentine. The first being that this film, while it does technically have an ensemble of characters, this film is a two-hander. Yeah. This film is really the bulk of it, especially after the half hour, once Pam gets attacked first, right, Uh, by the Prowler. It's just those two characters on a mission together in varying degrees. Now, you're cutting back to the graduation dance. You're getting kills and things. But really, it's the it's those two characters on a mission the whole time. Yeah. They know they're in a horror movie. Yes. <laughs> you know? Well, um, and, yes. Yeah. I was going to say, Pam sees the killer at like the 30-minute mark, which is really like, so from that point forward... Pam, at the very least, knows she's in a horror movie. And and Mark, you know, takes her word for it fairly quick. It's not like, you know, other characters don't necessarily know, but Pam and Mark know. What I also, you know, this is a movie that the, the, the red herring is set up. The first red herring is the first possible killer. No one believes in the beginning that there's a historical figure who did the murders at the 1945 graduation dance who has come back. Right. That... That is a theory Pam develops later on. Yes. The, in the beginning, um, the, when the sheriff is still in town, they get the call about a uh, someone who killed someone, I think, at a convenience store or something in Columbus. Yeah. And that they're on the loose and that they might be coming this way. So just keep an eye out. Yeah. And so that's the first red herring that comes. Um, and I guess the only other real big red herring amongst our characters would be Major Chatham. Well, they do an interesting thing in that in that opening prologue where they do name some people who we will then later see in like 35 years later. So like, um, is you know, could it be Pat Kingsley, the jerk who owns the convenience store? Could it be Jimmy Turner, the perv who runs the event hall? 
or or could it be Major Chatham uh, as well, who who uh, grabs at Pam when she's trying to escape her first encounter with the Prowler, which I thought that seems incredible because it creates this sense of double jeopardy. Yeah. It's really good. Um, and Major Chatham also has the additional uh, red herring weight of who his daughter was. Yes. His daughter was, wait for it, Rosemary, who was killed in 1945. Uh, also, you know, the other thing about this movie is it, it's really driven by atmosphere like it has got a haunting atmosphere and 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 fantastic kills um the the atmosphere there's something as i mentioned there's something so quaint about avalon bay as if it's like a town that time forgot but you contrast that with the disturbing look of the killer who is clad in head to toe in camouflage including like this camo mask out over his face and it this is one of the things I think is is different from My Bloody Valentine. And My Bloody Valentine, the, while the the minor is a striking image, he's he does kind of fit with the environment there. And they even use the other mind here. The killer looks completely out of place as he's walking through the halls of these ornate Victorian houses carrying a pitchfork, and it's it's he feels like he's out of time. Like it, it, it's like he's he, like he's traveled through time or like woken from a deep sleep like the mummy in the classic universal horror movie. That's what he feels like to me. And it's incredibly unsettling. Yeah. I mean, in many ways, uh, mentally, he is a man who has traveled through time. True. Uh, he's not he's not quite operating in, in 1980 New Jersey at this point. But uh, you'd mentioned um, the atmosphere and mood of this thing. And I just want to take a step out. We don't always do this, but I want to talk about the director. I want to talk about. Oh yes. Yes, we should. Um, When I'm going to say some stuff and I want to preface this by saying in the beginning, you might think that I'm criticizing this, but I'm absolutely not. I am telling you one of the things that I love about the direction in this and I'll connect it to Friday four. So after about the 30 minute mark is, is uh, you know, you'd pointed out that's it's very early in this film when Pam has her first confrontation with the Prowler. And from that point on, you do cut back to the graduation dance. You are cutting back to other people getting killed. But the feel of the movie for the final hour-ish of it, yeah, it really feels like an extended, like, detecting cat and mouse yeah. sequence. It's not quite a, it's not an hour-long chase. I don't want to give you the wrong impression, but you're really not dealing with what you would call traditional story elements at this point. You are, you know, I, it, it'd be also not to oversell it, but you know, much like Mad Max Fury road at a certain point, isn't dealing with traditional story points. You are just on a train that is moving. Right. Or uh, another one that I love uh, blade Two. Sure. Where yeah. it, it, at a certain point, it just becomes like this extended sequence. Uh, and I love them all. I know a lot of people might think that it's a criticism to say you've dialed down the story. This is a film, though. Yeah. Um, you can, you need all the elements, but you don't need them all in the same amounts in every yeah. film. That's what that makes is unique. true. And Joseph Zito can direct the hell out of tense chasing sequences, yeah. which is anyone who's seen the final half hour of friday the 13th the final chapter absolutely knows full well yeah joseph zito yeah you know the, the he he did this movie and this movie basically got him friday the 13th the final chapter which was like the first 
the first Friday movie not directed by sort of like the, the core creative team of the first one. Because like Steve, uh, it was Sean Cunningham who did the first Friday and then Steve Miner who worked on the first Friday did the second and third. So basically Joseph Zito is the first guy they brought in from the outside to do a, a Friday movie. And it's, you know, it's a great one. And then he went on, he did a lot of movies for Canon Films, including Invasion USA, which is tremendous. Uh, and... You know, and, and eventually for years, Canon Films was talking about doing Spider-Man directed by Joseph Zito. And, you know, while it's probably best that that, that things went the way they did, uh, it would have been a fascinating to see. Um, no, it's not best, Chris. I'm still have I'm still crafting my <laughs> alternate Earth portal so that I can see that movie. Oh. One day it, I will finish it, Chris. <laughs> I do. I, I would like to see it. I really would. <laughs> uh, and also, the other thing I should mention is the incredible kills in this movie are courtesy of makeup effects master Tom Savini, who had previously worked on Dawn of the Dead and the original Friday the 13th, and who would reteam with Joseph Zito on Friday the 13th, the final chapter. And and again, the like My Bloody Valentine, the kills are great, and they're incredibly well done. That one, that early shower kill is is brutal and and and, yeah. and incredibly well executed the makeup yeah. and the effects are amazing and it's in many ways i think they look better than the work he did in friday the 13th yeah i think he's i think he's you know he's, he's up in his game from the first friday absolutely yeah. and the what you talked about with that shower scene um that's when uh one of the victims gets stabbed with the pitchfork while naked in the shower there is something about how these that scene is crafted where it's not look it is tna yeah it is um you know a gore effect that's there to to stimulate the audience as well it's it's not like those things aren't present but there it is emotionally affecting yeah in a way that most of the time it's not another one that's it's even less gore that is seen it's the pool but that i find the pool I is knew it. really disturbing yeah. and affecting absolutely yeah no and it, it's it's really well done and and i think part of the, that feeds into there, there's there's a, there's a couple of of undercurrents at work in this movie one of them is that you have there is a lot of older men in this movie with a sense of entitlement, whether it's the convenience store owner or uh, pervy Jimmy Turner, who spies on a couple making out in the basement of his uh, of the hall, the event hall that he runs, or Major Chatham, who grabs at Pam. In The Prowler, even the non-murderous members of the greatest generation are entitled a-holes. And I suppose... That that would make the Prowler woke in the parlance of our times? I'm not sure about the math on that. But I will say... Um, <laughs> I'm going out on a limb and it may break under me. I, I, I fully yeah. recognize that. Even in that flashback, that member of the greatest generation, the boy, the rich boy... Yeah. He also entitled A-hole. Yeah. Um, who is like, you know, really, really pressuring Rosemary to go out to the gazebo and do some stuff. Yeah. He doesn't just want to kiss her. It's let's be honest. It's a little more than that. And yeah, it's, it's, and it's really interesting like that, that, you know, you, you have this because the eighties were not, you know, the standards of the eighties are different from the standards of today. And, you know, I say, woke. I'm, I'm joking, but like, it's, it's, 
I think this movie is ahead of the curve in terms of the way it looks at male entitlement. What I find interesting about that is that also because of the time period and because of the structure of this movie, it's not like it's dwelling on things or hitting you over the head with it, right? No. no characters no. don't characters don't talk about it. But at the same time, it does become difficult to ignore when it's playing that note yeah. over and over again. It's it's hard to believe that there wasn't some intention behind it. Have if to you're believe doing it. this doing it over and over and over again. Yeah. Um, and now this is the point again. Uh, I, I'm going to reveal who the prowl, the identity of the prowler is, so we can we can discuss it a little bit. Um, and if, if you need to, hey, pause, go watch the prowler, come back. We'll 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 be here. Uh, that's okay. Um, but the prowler is eventually revealed to be the sheriff, Sheriff Frazier, who was the man jilted by rosemary back in world war ii and his his annual fishing trip provides a convenient cover for uh for carrying out these killings and while you know dumping a guy while he's fighting the nazis isn't cool he's not entitled to kill you for it that's not okay yeah and um by the time the sheriff reveal happens in the movie you're not exactly surprised by it yeah it is set up earlier. Mark tries to call the sheriff at the fishing trip. Oh no, Pam does. I'm sorry. Yeah, and there's the guy at the cabin who 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 intercepts the call and just doesn't want to deliver the message. It's another entitled yeah. jerk. Yeah, he just sits there, and it's actually a, a some a while it's tense because you know the stakes. It is a a fairly amusing little sequence, yeah. I will say, um, with the guy who's just too lazy to do anything and just says he can't find the sheriff. Yeah. Um, again. Uh, very real, it feels like. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> yeah. I, I wasn't sure if, because I, I did remember who the killer was. And this time watching it through, I, I was like, well, it's pretty clear. And I wasn't sure if that was just me or if it was, oh, you know, like if you think about it for five minutes, it's like, oh, hey, the guy that you introduce early and then you send off on a, quote, fishing trip, well, it's probably your guy. Yeah, it's Scooby-Doo rules. But it's interesting that unlike My Bloody Valentine, you, you have a guy who is the actual killer from before. It's it's like one in, in My Bloody Valentine, it's somebody essentially taking on the mantle of Harry Warden, whereas here it is the actual killer from 45. Yeah. And they never caught the killer in 45. Yeah. And it's they don't they don't deal with that a ton um, because they do know that Rosemary died. And I believe they know that she was killed. Yeah. No, it's it's an unsolved murder in the town. Yeah. So that is that is fun in the context of a horror movie. I want to be clear. Yes, yes. In the context <laughs> yeah. of a horror movie. Um, yeah. And, and there's also also under the surface of this movie, there's all there's clearly a um, some kind of message that war is not something that people can just shut off. It's not just a valve that can be turned, you know, and while the killer in this movie was a World War II vet. You know, this film came out less than a decade after the U.S. withdrawal from Vietnam. And about a year later, you know, the movie First Blood would depict a soldier who also could not turn it off, uh, you know, just after coming back, like you, you, you flick a switch. And even though that manifests itself for John Rambo in a very different way, uh, I mean, that was clearly all in the zeitgeist in that, that first decade after the Vietnam War. And I think the Prowler is part of it, you know, in the way that like MASH is not really about Korea. This movie, in some ways, isn't really about World War, World War II. 
Yeah, uh, in that way, reminds me of a much later film, uh, what, A Midnight Clear. Oh, sure. It's a terrific film. Is a World War II movie, but done in the style of a Vietnam War movie. Yeah. Um, <clears throat> yeah, one of my one of my favorites. Obviously, I haven't enough, seen but, uh, it in ages, but I, I I gotta revisit that. That's a, I, that is a good picture. The Prowler, uh, honestly, My Bloody Valentine did not do great at the box office back in '81, and The Prowler did even worse. Uh, I, I hate to say, even though those, I, I think they are two of the best examples of slasher movies from this period. They didn't do great. I think in large part, The Prowler didn't do great because it was released by a company called Sandhurst Films. Uh, which is a company that even I've never heard of, except for The Prowler. Um, it's interesting. The original title was Graduation, which I, my guess is that when Graduation Day had come out the previous year, that put the kibosh on that. But uh, both My Bloody Valentine and The Prowler, the companies that produced them were named after the original working titles because uh, My Bloody Valentine is created by secret The Secret Films, and this was produced by Graduation Films and then distributed by Sanders. But I think they're both they're both so good. You're kind of reaching, I think, the peak in 81 of the, the post-Halloween slasher boom. Uh, and certainly in terms of the number of these types of movies released, in 81 was probably the, the, the biggest year. What's fun to note about that title change, knowing that the movie was made without the Prowler as the title, People say the word Prowler a lot, a lot in this movie. Yeah. Oh, there. there's not an escaped maniac on the loose. There's not a killer who might be in the area. You need to stay in the dance because there's a Prowler <laughs> around. They they use the word Prowler. So much. And it wasn't at the time they were shooting. That was, I don't think, the title. That wasn't that wasn't until later. Um, that That is serendipity, folks. Um I think I think that is the place to stop for today. Um, we hope you'll come back next week because we have a very special episode featuring a get me another first. That's right. We will be having a guest on the show. Ryan from the New World Pictures podcast, which is one of our favorite podcasts out there, will be joining us to discuss three slasher films with a collegiate setting. Hell Night the Slumber Party Massacre, and the House on Sorority Row. We are very excited to have Ryan with us, and we hope you'll join us next week. Uh, again, thank you so much for listening. We are your hosts, Chris Iannacone and Rob Lamorgis. If you've enjoyed our show, please consider subscribing and following us on Twitter and Instagram at Get Me Another Pod. Tell your friends, tell your enemies, tell random people in the streets, and join us next time as we continue to explore what happens when Hollywood says, get me another. Cue the ballad of Harry Warden! <laughs> <laughs>
And no one will know As the years come and go Of the horror from long time ago Twenty years came and went And everyone spent the fourteenth In quiet regret And those still alive Know the secret survives In the darkness that looms in the night For the legend they say On a Valentine's Day Is a curse that'll live on and on And no one will know As the years come and go Of the horror from long time ago In this little town When the fourteenth comes round There's a silence and fear in the air Remember the morn that the legend was born All the shock and the horror was there Or oh, the legend they say on a Valentine's Day Is a curse that'll live on and on And no one will know as the years come and go Of the horror from long time ago And no one will know as the years come and go Of the horror from long time ago